Thank you so much for tuning in and welcome everyone. Hope you're well. I'm your host, Ben Lively, and you're listening to Shake and Awake, episode number 23. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in wherever you are and whatever you're doing this very moment. And as always, I promise you another great show, but more than anything, my hope for you today and always is that you have an actual encounter with the Lord. He's always right there with you even when you think he's not. So let's get ready to invite him in with us right here, right now, and allow him to speak directly to your hearts and minds. So here goes. Here is today's topic. Remorseful, regretful, or repentant? Which one are you? So I I felt led to share this with the world ever since the Holy Spirit convicted of uh, me of it. And, and God's word helped explain my questions and, and a lot of my doubts. You know, wisdom comes from hearing. It just took me 41 years to listen. That's another turning point in, in my conversion from being an unsaved Christian to a, uh, a saved and true Christian. One that has since shaken me awake to God's never-ending truths and wisdom to those with ears to hear and eyes to see. Now, unfortunately, the devil has so many blinded to this truth that it's literally costing the payment of hell to so many who who he has blinded. So let me share something with you that I never heard much of growing up in in the church. In fact, so little, I don't think anyone ever explained it to me or showed it to me in the Bible where it's plain as day, but... Only if you know where to look, and of course, only if you actually dwell in the Word of God, versus relying on many uh, man or preachers to teach you the Bible. Here's a secret. They won't, and they don't, at least not in full context anyway. So I just wanted to share some verses that God used to shake me awake with that I never knew existed because I never read my Bible. Again, I, I thought John 3.16 was my scapegoat. So one is 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Revelations 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and listen or discipline, so be earnest and repent. Acts 17.30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 13.3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Luke 17, 3 to 4. If your brother or sisters sin against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Luke 13, 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Ezekiel 18, 21 to 23, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the for the righteous that he has done he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Luke 15:10 Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I've got tons of verses guys. Uh, here, here's the verse I'm going to end with and, and then use as the main reference and theme for today's episode. More importantly, for those of us that desp- that need desperately to hear, to understand and to cling to, to this truth, it's from 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 to 11. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. The world today doesn't want anything to do with sorrow. It drowns out its sorrows with busyness, music, therapists, medication. You know, if it, if it makes me sad, it must be bad, right? It's an adage to which we seem to adhere to by default. But sorrow can be beneficial. It's not always a bad thing. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians, though, the, the, you know, that though he did initially, he does not regret having caused them sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7 to 8 because they were made sorrow uh, sorrowful to the point of repentance and according to the will of God. In 2 Corinthians 7, that's in 7, 9. You know, this verse makes clear that there is a kind of sorrow that is according to the will of God. There's a sorrow 
that God wants you to experience because the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. That should catch your attention. That's in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul's teaching the Corinthians that an essential component of true repentance is genuine sorrow over having grieved God and belittled his holiness. And so we're going to define repentance here. One of the most common definitions of repentance is a change of mind. That's the literal original definition of the Greek word for repentance. Meta means change. Neoi means to think. But some take that to mean that repentance is nothing more than an intellectual variation, you know, and an acknowledgement that you've sinned and a commitment to think differently about it from now on. But the mind that is changed in repentance refers to the inner consciousness of the whole person. So in the Bible, the mind and the heart are often used, uh, you know, interchangeably. So repentance begins with, with an intellectual recognition and a confession of sin, but it doesn't end there. There is also a change of heart, an emotional component, right, in, in which the genuine believer mourns over having sinned against the God whom he or she loves. That's why in the Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the person who is truly repentant is not unaffected by his or her sin, as if it was just no big deal. You know, oh, I I, I broke the law of God again. Sorry, God. So glad you're so gracious. No. If you're truly uh, repentant, you capture the wrongdoing. Your sin is to God. A God so good as to deliver his only begotten son to death in your place. A God so patient with you, despite the fact that even after he saved you, you sin against him still. When you understand that you've sinned against that glorious God, the only proper response is sorrow, to have a broken spirit and a remorseful heart. It's that broken spirit and remorseful heart that motivates you to change course and return to God in faithfulness. Genuine repentance is a matter of the heart. This is why Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who who mourn over their sin. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's Matthew 5, 4. Because it's only those who feel the shame of their sin who feel the offense it is to the holiness of God and mourn over it. They're the ones who turn from it in genuine repentance and seek forgiveness by the grace of God and are comforted by the God who does not despise a broken spirit and a remorseful heart. Sorrow can be beneficial, but there's worldly sorrow too. Sorrow is not always beneficial. While those who are genuinely repentant will experience sorrow over their sin, sorrow itself is not repentance. There is a kind of sorrow over sin that does not produce repentance and therefore does not lead to salvation. Paul identifies this kind of sorrow as, quote unquote, the sorrow of the world which produces death in 2 Corinthians 7.10. The main characteristic of, of worldly sorrow is that it is fundamentally 
um, self-centered, right? So worldly sorrow revolves around the pain that sin causes to oneself rather than the offense and the dishonor it is to God. You know, just listen to the words of Philip Hughes in, in describing worldly sorrow. He says, it is not sorrow because of the heinousness of sin as rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequence of sin. Self is its central point. So this is the sorrow of, of self-pity, the sorrow of getting caught, right? The sorrow over the consequences that sin brings. People who have worldly sorrow are often defensive about their sin and attempt to justify it or explain it away. Whereas godly sorrow causes you to own your sin and make no excuses. You know you're experiencing worldly sorrow when you're grieving for yourself, for the embarrassment you're suffering and the pain you're feeling rather than mourning over the grief you've brought to the Holy Spirit for dishonoring the grace of, of Christ and, and belittling the glory of God. One of the clearest examples that scriptures give us of worldly sorrow is Judas. It is said of Judas that he, quote unquote, felt remorse for betraying Christ, that he, quote unquote, returned the 30 pieces of silver by which he was bribed and, and that he even openly confessed that Quote, unquote, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's Matthew 27, 3. At this point, Judas's actions are nearly indistinguishable uh, distinguishable from genuine repentance. He confessed his sin. He felt remorse over it and he changed his course. But ultimately, we learn this was not godly sorrow leading to repentance, but worldly sorrow that produced death. How do we know? Because when the chief priests and elders wouldn't take his money back, he what did he do? He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hung himself. It's in Matthew 27, 5. So if Judas was mourning over the offense that he had committed against the Son of God, if his grief was fundamentally God-centered, his response would have looked much different. He knew from walking with Christ for more than three years that he could have found forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus had to die for liars and traitors just like him, and that forgiveness was available to those who had abandoned their sin and trust in Christ for righteousness. But that wasn't Judas's concern. His grief was fundamentally self-centered. He couldn't bear the shame and the humiliation of having betrayed the Son of God. And rather than bringing that shame to the Savior who could pay for it, he sought to atone for his own sins by suicide. Worldly sorrow produces death. Worldly sorrow causes you to focus on how terrible of a sinner you are rather than how gracious of a Savior Jesus is. The instinct of worldly sorrow is to try to atone for sin by worrying of it, uh, over it, by feeling so bad for yourself that you're condensed to despair. But the instinct, uh, the instinct of, of, of godly sorrow is to run to the cross of Christ where the only atonement for sin was made. What, well, what is genuine repentance then? True repentance does not stop even with godly sorrow but the issues in a changed life genuine repentance bears fruit 
And we see this as Paul uh, details what the Corinthians' repentance consisted uh, in in 2 Corinthians 7.11. From this uh, description, we, we gather several characteristics which we can assess whether our repentance is genuine or not. So true repentance is marked by sincerity and earnestness. Paul writes, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. Earnestness refers to the Corinthians' eagerness to change their course and to restore their relationship with Paul. This is also expressed by the final three words, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Genuine repentance is not apathetic towards sin. It's not indifferent about making amends or restoring a relationship that's been damaged by sin. People who are truly repentant don't need to be harassed into seeking forgiveness. They don't need to be persuaded into chasing uh, reconciliation. They don't need to be coaxed into making change in their lives. That will ensure that no provision is made for the flesh in regard to, to its lusts. Genuine repentance beholds the seriousness of sin and it's eager to deal with it biblically. True repentance is marked by a desire to be known for righteousness. So Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, what vindication of yourselves? True repentance is marked by a desire to clear your name of the stigma of your sin, a yearning to have a reputation for righteousness rather than for iniquity. And how do you do that? You do everything you can to make sure your repentance is as public as your sin was. You conduct yourself so that everyone who knew of your sin now knows that you've put off that unrighteousness and that you've begun putting on the appropriate fruit of the Spirit in its place. If your sin was gossip, you now attempt to be known as one that speaks the truth and never evil of another. If your sin was impatience towards someone, you may go, uh, you know, now go out of your way to show them grace. You desire to be known for righteousness because you bear the name of the righteous one. And you desire to bring no reproach upon his reputation. True repentance is marked by anger. Those who repent of sin are righteously angry with themselves for having sinned against God. This is a natural effect of godly sorrow, but it's more intense. You know, the, the repentant person does not pamper or coddle himself with, with positive thinking. Repentance knows nothing by the way of self-esteem. Repentance is concerned with what I call God-esteem, or as Paul puts it, the fear of God. Rather than concern for oneself, reverence for God and his wounded honor dominates the affections of the one whose repentance is genuine. True repentance is evidence by making things right. And, and, And Paul concludes with, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. This doesn't mean that they had never been guilty of sin, but they had been born such fruit in keeping with repentance that they had made things right and they could no longer be held to blame for the sin they they had committed. That's the fruit of genuine repentance and eagerness and a passion, not a reluctance, but an eagerness and a passion to demonstrate a changed life to all those affected by your sin and anger with yourself and your sin, born out of the greatest respect for God, rather 
than for yourself or what other people think of you. It's a, it's a longing for the restoration of any relationship that's damaged by your sin and a genuine concern that righteousness would be upheld as sin is disciplined and dealt with biblically. So be, be sure to examine whether your repentance is marked by these biblical characteristics. And I'm reminded of, of uh, you know, focus and regret and repentance and and what's the motivation? So regret focuses on my outward behavior. Repentance focuses on my heart's motives. You know, regret is sorry I got caught. Repentance is glad I got caught. Regret's motivated by the pain of consequences. Repentance is motivated by causing grieving of the Holy Spirit. You know, as time passed, I began to notice a very important trend. I would feel guilty, ask for forgiveness, then find myself doing it again and asking for forgiveness again. It became this never-ending pattern. And, and finally, it dawned on me what was happening. I was constantly remorseful, but I never changed. And although I would consistently, you know, ask for forgiveness, it appeared that nothing much deeper occurred than the asking of my forgiveness. I began to realize that asking for forgiveness over and over isn't always a sign of repentance. Sometimes it's only an indication of remorse. Repentance produces change, whereas remorse merely produces sorrow, which is often confused with repentance. But there is an enormous difference between repentance and remorse. A perfect New Testament example of remorse is found in Matthew 27, 3 to 5, where the Bible tells us about, again, Judas Iscariot. It says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So notice that the Bible, the Bible says that Judas repented himself. Usually a person who repents doesn't go out and hang himself afterward. So what really happened in this verse? The answer lies in the word repented that's used in the verse. It's not the word metaneo, the word most often used meaning repent in the New Testament. Instead, this particular word for repent is the Greek word Metamelanomai, which portrays a person who is completely overwhelmed with emotions. This word is used five times in the New Testament, and in each instance, it expresses sorrow, mourning, or grief. The word metalamaneo rarely gives the picture of someone moved to change, but rather it represents a person who's restrained with remorse or guilt or regret. So, Meta Meloomai, it's M E T A M E L O M A I. It can depict remorse that grips a person because of an act that he or she committed that he or she knows is wrong. So if, if he were willing to repent, he could change and be forgiven. But because he has no plans to repent or stop his sinful activities and rectify what he's done, he's therefore gripped with remorse. 
Consequently, this emotion produces no change in a person's life. Does that sound familiar? Can also express the guilt a person feels because he or she knows that what he's he or she has done wrong that they'll continue to do wrong and that they have no plans to change their course of action. They feel ashamed about what they're doing but continue to do it anyway, which results in a state of ongoing guilt. And this guilt produces no change in a person's life or behavior. Yet genuine repentance would fix this feeling of guilt and remove it completely. Does that sound familiar? And it also best denotes the regret a person feels because they were caught doing something wrong. They're not repentant for committing the sin. Instead, they're sorrowful only because they got caught. Now they're in trouble. Rather than being repentant, this person is regretful that they got caught and must now pay the consequences. Chances are that if they'd never been caught, they would have continued these activities. This kind of regret likewise produces no change in a person's conduct. Does that sound familiar? They all three state exactly how I lived my life for the first 41 years of my life. Exactly, to a T. And because that word, metamelomai, is used in Matthew 27.3, it means Judas Iscariot did not repent in the sense that he was sorry for what he did and wanted to make it right with God. Rather, it confirms that he was remorseful, he was seized with guilt, and filled with regret. Because of his actions, Judas blew his opportunity to be a high-ranking member of Jesus' inner circle. Judas was more sorrowful for himself than he was for his participation in Jesus' betrayal. This wasn't a demonstration of repentance that leads to salvation, but of sorrow, guilt, and this remorse that ultimately led to death. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote, when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10 about the sorrow of the world that worketh death. Don't misunderstand me. Emotion and tears may accompany repentance. If we have sinned against the Holy Spirit, it's normal for us to experience godly sorrow for our actions. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul wrote about godly sorrow. Unlike the sorrow of the world that produces death, he wrote that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. But godly sorrow produces more than tears. It produces a desire to change that leads us to deliverance, to freedom, to salvation. What a contrast to the sorrow of the world that produces hopelessness, defeat, and despair. Remember the word repent is meneo, referring to a complete turn in the one way thinks, lives, or acts. For a person to repent... They must simply make up their mind to change. So what's the difference between guilt, remorse, regret, and repentance? Guilt is a prison that's going to keep you continually bound and unchanged. Remorse, it just binds you in sorrow that overwhelms you emotionally, leaves you sad, you know, feeling sad, depressed, hopeless, and unchanged. Regret is a self-pity It's focused more on your own personal loss than on the pain or loss you cause to others or to the heart of God. And it leaves you unchanged. Repentance 
is a quality decision to change. And when genuine repentance occurs in a person's heart and mind, you can be sure that the Holy Spirit will release his power to affect change in that person's life and lead him to freedom. So my final question to you today is then this. From what we've discussed today, are there any areas in your life in which you've felt guilty, remorseful, or regretful, but it's unchanged? Could it be that you've never really made a firm decision to change, and that's why you've had no enduring victory in these areas of your life? My final statement is this. If you've confused regret or remorse with repentance, as I had, now you know you don't have to depend on your emotions to repent. If God is dealing with you about something that needs to change in your life, you can repent right now at this very moment, regardless of what you do or or you don't feel. God is waiting for you to make a decision. Repent. Don't look back, but look ahead to the race that is set before you. Repent and change. So before we end today's show, I just want to thank you all again for tuning in. I hope you were touched by God through today's messages and scripture. I'd like to ask you a favor only if you've received any value out of today's show. Would you tell at least one person you know? Call them, text them, email them, talk to them, chat with them. Tell them to give the show a listen. It might just help them in their walk with Christ. And as a special request from me, if you could give me just a quick rating or a review on whichever podcast app you listen on, that'd be great uh, to catch the attention of inquiring listeners, which will also then allow the Lord and the Holy Spirit to reach even more lives through this broadcast. If you'd like to get a hold of me, write me a note on shaken-awake.com forward slash contact or email me directly at ben at shaken-awake.com or even call or text me directly for any reason at 407-493-3208. Again, that number is 407-493-3208. I want your feedback, your questions, ideas, requests, criticisms, corrections. You know, if it's important to you, it's absolutely important to me. And come check our new uh, podcast uh, uh, Facebook page, Shaken Awake Podcast. Uh, it's a public group. It's it's growing by the week and it's uh, it's got uh, God all, all in it and it is uh, it's growing and I invite you to to join us. So next week, tune in next Sunday or whenever you're able as we dive into another important topic, which is how and what are you doing to prepare for eternity? So next week's episode is another powerful and do not miss episode. Thank you for joining. Until next week, take great care of yourself and each other and God bless you all. 